0: This is the Engineering and Leadership Podcast. Pat Sweet here, and welcome to Episode 24 of the Engineering and Leadership Podcast, the show dedicated to helping engineers thrive. Today, I interview author, CTO, and veteran MIT instructor Mark Hirschberg to learn what it takes to succeed in your engineering career. Welcome, everyone, to another edition, another episode of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. I, of course, am Pat Sweet, and I'm very excited to have you here with me today. If today is the the first day you join me, if this is your very first episode, welcome. I'm super excited to have you here. I hope you enjoy this. I I certainly hope you, you hear that I enjoy this. This is a lot of fun, very much a passion project for me to... To help engineers, to help engineers in their careers, and particularly engineers become leaders, and and for those who are already leaders and managers to become even better leaders and managers. This is incredibly important work to me, and I think important work to the world that we as engineers become stronger leaders. With that, I've got a really good interview lined up today with Mr. Mark Hirschberg. A lot of really, really interesting insights. I think one of the things that you'll hear in the interview is that Mark has been around the block with respect to the podcast interview circuit, promoting his book, The Career Toolkit. But before we get into that... Uh, and, and trust me, it's well worth the wait. Before we get into that, a couple things I wanted to mention. First and foremost is the Engineering and Leadership Leaders Are Readers Contest. This is something that I launched last week. And it, it's very simple. It's a way for me to start celebrating uh, National Engineering Month here in Canada. We've got a whole month that we dedicated to the celebration of engineers and the profession of engineering. So uh, in order to participate, in order to take part in that, I'm running a contest and it's my, my Leaders Are Readers contest. And it's very simple. It's free to sign up. All you have to do is go to engineeringandleadership.com slash contest. All the details are there. All you have to do is sign up and get a ballot in a random draw to win copies of my three favorite management and leadership books. And if you go to that website, you'll also see there are lots of different ways of, of submitting additional ballots to increase your chances of winning. So again, engineeringandleadership.com slash Contest you'll, you'll see everything you need to know there and another thing that I'll mention is uh, on my website on engineeringandleadership.com, there are a number of different free resources that I provide. Of course, there's the podcast, but if you look back, there are also a number of uh, blog posts that I have there, both for myself and guest authors. but there are also a number of free dedicated resources and uh, what I wanted to do is, is kind of call to attention one of those, and that is uh, a free ebook it's about a 40 page PDF ebook. Called Engineering Leadership 101. And it, that's something that I wrote specifically for engineers, for anyone who wants to improve their leadership skills, whether you're in a formal leadership position or not. Uh, one of the things that you'll hear today from Mark is that he believes anyone uh, can and should, if they've got it kind of in their genes, start leading from the very first day of their careers. And whether or not your position is a formal leadership one or not really doesn't matter. Uh, you can exercise leadership skills and establish yourself as a leader, even in your first year of your employment. So again, Engineering Leadership 101 is a free ebook that I wrote to, to help people develop those skills. So if you're interested in getting your copy of that, you just go to engineeringandleadership.com leadership 101. All right, let's make our way to the main content for today. We all go to school expecting to learn the skills we need to succeed in the real world. As engineers, we probably felt pretty confident that at the end of our degree, we'd be equipped with everything we needed to build strong careers and climb the ranks. Armed with knowledge of AutoCAD and second-order differential equations, there'd be nothing we couldn't handle. Fast forward a little bit into your actual careers, and for anyone who's actually been in the workforce for any length of time, you know just how far this is from the truth you know that an undergraduate degree in engineering, while necessary, isn't exactly sufficient for success in a career. That's why author, engineer, CTO, and veteran MIT instructor Mark Hirschberg wrote The Career Toolkit, essential skills for success that no one taught you. After teaching in MIT's Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program for nearly 20 years, combined with senior leadership experience in startups and Fortune 500s, Mark learned exactly what skills engineers needed to thrive and how to teach them. Mark has a bachelor's in physics, as well as bachelor's and master's degrees in electrical engineering and computer science, all from MIT, and was once one of the top-ranked ballroom dancers in the United States. Here is my conversation
1: with Mark Hirschberg.
0: Mr. Mark Hirschberg, welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast. I'm so glad you came out tonight.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today.
0: Yeah, me too, me too. There, there's, there's an awful lot to talk about. You've got a, a book you released very recently. You've got a broad experience, time teaching at MIT, a lot of time teaching at MIT. I want to get to, to all of that, um, but where I'd like to start is with your book. It's called The Career Toolkit, and it tackles topics that you call essential skills things that, that nobody taught you uh, as you you know as you as you went through uh, your 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 career training engineering school uh, how is it that you came up with these skills how did you decide these are the ones that ought to show up in a book and and be considered essential
1: I first recognized it when I knew early in my career as a software engineer I wanted to become a CTO and I realized being a CTO didn't just mean I was a really good engineer. That was part of it. Although, frankly, my ability to code these days is a lot rustier than it was 20 (laughs) years ago. To be a good CEO, to lead an engineering organization, you have to be a good leader, a good manager. You have to have a strong network, know how to build teams, communicate, negotiate, all these skills they never taught you. And I started developing it in myself. I recognized when I was interviewing others, they didn't have these skills either because no one taught me, no one taught them. So I need to develop it in my team. I couldn't buy. I had to build. So I started working on some content. In doing so, uh, MIT recognized the same challenge. MIT had gotten feedback from the companies we work with. And they said, look, your students are smart, but we want to see these skills in the people we hire, not just out of school in general. We can't find them. So MIT was developing this program. I reached out. I said, I heard about this. I've been working on something. Can I help? and they said great so i helped develop the course i've been teaching there so the content came from both my own experience but then feedback that we've gotten from companies saying this is what we want but can't find
0: okay so that's really interesting so in the early days it sounds like there was a bit of trial and error in that you you recognized there was something of a something of a gap you knew you weren't going to be coding as a cto or ceo that that's not how you're spending your your days um in the, in the early days, what, what, what were kind of the, the initial things that you knew had to be there that were non-negotiables that, that have kind of stood the test of time? What, what, what were those core skills that you knew right away you needed
1: to develop needed to develop and, and that others needed to develop as well? I knew project management was a piece of it. And it wasn't simply, okay, we're going to create a project plan. This was actually in the days before Agile, which is now common software. It wasn't just a a scrum board or a project plan, but really it's, I'm sure, more complex than this. And thinking about the trade-offs and how you take that all into account, communication I knew was important. I knew how to talk to engineers. I also knew when I would talk to non-engineers, I'd lose them. Somehow we weren't connecting. I knew I had to overcome that. I didn't quite know why. And then, of course, leadership. Right? We, as young people, we see, well, this person really stands out as a leader. We may or may not feel that we're leaders. We might not be able to identify what makes them a leader, but you can kind of, I know it when I see it. And I knew I had to figure that out and develop it in myself. So, you know,
0: you, you didn't have the benefit of having this book. <laughs> you, you had to write it. So how did you go about this, this journey of developing these skills? Who, who did you turn to? What did you do? Uh, in order to better yourself in in
1: these aspects? Not only didn't I have the book, I didn't even have most of the web, because this was 20-some years ago. The internet was around, and the web was around, but in the early stages. So there weren't a lot of online resources. There weren't great podcasts like this one. So what I did, there were some books, and I started reading any book I could get my hands on. I list a number of them, in fact, on the resources page on the website, I list a lot of books that went into creating this that influenced me, even some books I didn't reference but that influenced me. And then I would go to talks, I'd go to events, and once I started teaching at MIT, the great thing about teaching is you learn when you teach. I might have known a bit, but there were other people who knew other things I didn't know, and I was able to learn even as I continued to teach throughout the years at MIT and elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great that's a a, a great idea. And it, it, regardless of what skill you're talking about, if you can find an opportunity to to teach or or mentor others in it, that's a that's a fantastic way to really solidify things in your own mind. That's uh that that's great. I'm really glad you brought that up. Well, one of these skills that you mentioned right off the top was was leadership. That's something you identified immediately as something engineers, technical folks don't learn, but absolutely need if they're going to progress. In your book, you make the argument that leading doesn't start when you become a manager, but rather the day you start your career. And I thought that was really interesting. What do you mean by that? How how can you start leading on day
1: one? How does that work? A common misconception is that leadership is positional. You don't become a leader until you have a certain title, director, VP, whatever the title might be. And people with this attitude think, well, I'm just going to sit quietly and wait for my turn and, okay, now I've got the big chair. But when we teach leadership, those of us who research it, who teach it, who understand it, we know leadership, true leadership is influential. It's not the authority that comes from a position, is the influence that we can put out. When we think about the greatest leaders in history, when we think about people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, They had no authority. They didn't hold elected office. They didn't have millions of dollars. What they did is they said, I have a dream, right? I have a vision for the future. And they inspired people to come along. That is true leadership. And all of us can do it. You can be the most junior person on your team and say, hey, wait a second. I have an idea. Why don't we build it this way? And if you can convince people, you have now led your team. You might not have done all the execution to deliver, but you've led your team in a new direction. And all of us can do that day one. That's that's fascinating.
0: So so it's more about it's more about your influence on the team than it is the, the the name on the business card, so to speak.
1: True leadership is influential leadership. Now it's augmented when you also have authority, authority to hire people or spend money, but you can be a leader without that formal authority that you get from the position.
0: So what would you recommend someone who really wants to hit the ground running? They want to establish themselves as a leader, particularly early career folks. What are some concrete uh, examples or ideas that you can offer to, to really uh, give people so that they can take it to the office tomorrow, <laughs> so to speak, to to really try and, and, and establish themselves and get started down that road?
1: I'm going to give you an exercise that we do in the book. So be prepared to pause. I want you to think for a moment, what are the qualities you look for in a leader? So pause this podcast and write down as many qualities as you can think of. Take two minutes to do that. Okay, great. You've got that list. Now I want you to make a second list. Imagine you're a leader. You're picking people for your team. Write down all the qualities you want in the people you are picking for your team. So pause again for another two minutes or so. Okay, so now you have these two lists, the qualities you want in a leader and the qualities you want in a follower. Here's the punchline. I hope you did it or you're not gonna get as much out of this experience. If you haven't, last chance to pause. Those two lists are going to look remarkably similar. The traits that we want in a leader are the traits that we want in a follower. And so you can develop your leadership skills by focusing on any of these individual skills and working on developing them and getting stronger and more proficient. So you can work on your leadership from day one, even if you don't have, here's the idea to take us in a new direction, work on the individual skills.
0: See, what I really like about that, and and for those of you who didn't pause, maybe you're driving, um, it's okay, you can come listen to this again later. The podcast will be here for you. One of the things I really like about that exercise, Mark, is that everyone's list will look a little bit different right? What you see in a leader that you admire or in a follower that, that you admire might be different from someone else. And, and I, I suspect that that's intentional on your part, because th- there's more than one way to lead. There's more than one style of leadership. And you don't have to, in my experience anyway, fit a particular mold in order to, to be considered a
1: leader. Would you agree with that? Yes. And let's actually dive into that a bit, because this is a really important point. There are many styles of leadership, and we're all different. And this is what trips some people up when learning leadership or some of the other skills I talk about in the book. We are so used to learning by information transfer. What do I mean by that? When I think about my electrical engineering classes, they would explain, here's how to do a 4A transform, and they'd sit there and show the formula, and then we'd record the formula, we'd apply the formula, and we'd just memorize the formula. That's how it worked when you learn some new tool, some new technique, is information transfer. An expert stands in the front of the room or on a podcast and says, do one, two, three, and now you've done it. When it comes to leadership or communication, negotiation, networking, all these are our skills. There's no one, two, three, and now you're done. Here's the formula for being a leader. It's not that simple. So we have to adjust how we learn. And this is something, unfortunately, schools don't do it. And a lot of organizations, when they try to do this training, they don't do it well. The way we teach at MIT, the way top business schools teach, we use a peer learning model. What you want to do is create a group of people. You can do it within your company, your organization. You can do it with people outside of your company. Maybe create a local meetup group or just some other organization or a collection of people. And you want to take some content and discuss it get these different views. So you talk about, okay, here's the situation. Pat, how would you go and lead? Oh, that's really interesting. You know, I would have done it totally differently. And we learn our different styles. I might adapt some of what you're taking. I might not feel comfortable with it, but even just understanding how you're doing it, I'm going to now identify that in other people and say, oh, you know what? I see what she's doing. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of her really leading doing that, but I get it because this works for some people. So what you want to do? Create these learning groups. And on my website, there's a free download for how you can think about creating them or the questions to ask. Now, you can take my book and take pieces of it and go and use that as the impetus for it. But I don't want this to come off as he's just trying to sell more books because you don't need to use my book. You can use any other book out there, the ones I list on the website, any books you like. You can have articles, blog posts. You can take great podcasts like this one and after you listen to each episode on this podcast, discuss this with your peers. The important thing is that you get these multiple perspectives that you were talking about earlier and you discuss with other people to get that more comprehensive view of leadership or these other skills.
0: No, I really, really like this. And, and I myself, within the last year, uh, I've benefited from th- that exact method. Um, many folks who listen to the podcast know that I earned my, my PMP designation last summer. Uh, after a failed attempt a couple years earlier, trying to study on my own. I just, it was very hard to, to maintain that momentum. One of the core differences in my approach last year was that I brought others along for the ride. I found a couple other guys at work who wanted to get the designation, and we set a schedule, went chapter by chapter, and at the end of each chapter, got together to talk about it. And challenge one another and discuss the ideas. What do you think that meant? How might that apply in our world or our industry? And I, I got to say, I got so much more out of that experience by figuring out, A, where I was wrong, <laughs> right? Which you, you don't catch until you talk to other people or challenging other people's ideas or interpretations of something. The it, the, the, the learning goes much, much deeper. I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a great idea. And one thing uh, I'll, I'll mention here is that you, you've mentioned a number of resources on the website. I'll be having, I'll be putting links to all of this in the show notes, so it'll be very easy for people to get to it. Uh, really, really happy for you to be sharing all this. One of the things that you, you've talked a lot about is the, um, the, the non-linear nature of a lot of the skills that that we don't learn that, that we really do need to, and leadership being one of them. And... One of the other things that you suggest in in your book is that the hardest part of management is the people and I suspect that there's a link here people are nonlinear people are not heuristic what's the best advice you could give someone who who wants to be better at working with people? Because this is a struggle a lot of technical folks have, a lot of non-technical technical folks have as well, is is the difficulty in engaging with people, in particular, people from different technical fields or who view the world differently. What, what would you recommend there?
1: Here's a way to think about it. We typically have in our engineering approach, there is the right way to do something, the right formula, the right approach. There is one single answer people it's a lot more complicated but let's put this in engineering terms sometimes when you're looking at a difficult problem the way to solve it is to rotate your coordinate space right you look at it in different ways oh well from this perspective all of a sudden it gets much easier right but if you're not looking in that right perspective it's a much more complicated problem people are the same way when you look at us all through one lens as an engineer I know I've been very black and white in the past, many of us are, and, well, this is how the world works. This is clearly right, because the world we live in is right and wrong. Yes and no, objective answers. When you do that shift and you start to view people through different lenses, you start to say, okay, from my logical lens, what you're saying doesn't make sense, But if we look at from a different perspective, maybe it's an emotional perspective, maybe it's a perspective of different values, maybe it's a perspective of different assumptions, all of a sudden what you're saying becomes much more logical within that framework you're using. Understanding different people, understanding their motivations, how they think, their values, this is key to understanding people
0: yeah that that's true it's it, one of the things that has come up in a number of previous interviews on the show is that that you have to understand that all the people you're, you're working with are whole people and maybe they're only expressing themselves in kind of a professional capacity at work but that doesn't mean that their their whole selves don't show up to work they have values they have a history they had that fight with their spouse earlier that day that you wouldn't have a clue about, but is' absolutely affecting their headspace here and now. So I think that's that's really, really good advice. It's incredibly important to step back, and incredibly important to think that there, there may be more than one story, more than one explanation for why someone might be behaving or acting a certain way, and and by shifting that perspective right? Imagining other explanations than what you've decided in your head must explain someone <laughs> the, the way they're behaving is incredibly valuable. I want to shift gears a little bit to something may, maybe a little bit more more comfortable for uh, a lot of engineers, and that is, uh, that's uh, operations management. And this is something that I, I'm very passionate about. I'm passionate about continuous improvement. I'm passionate about process. Uh, I'm a huge nerd. I get that. <laughs> this is something that in, in my experience, a lot of management and leadership books career books don't really don't really get into the 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 day to day nitty gritty how to manage the work the the real work and i've never really made sense of that the The best I can think of is it's not it's not as sexy as strategy it's not as feel good as people and and maybe that's why it doesn't end up there. What made you decide to dedicate a chapter to to the
1: day-to-day operations in your book? So many times I have just seen it done poorly. And typically it's not because people are bad or they don't care, it's just so easy to not see the forest for the trees. We're so busy, especially for the startups that I tend to work at, but I see the same thing at large companies I consult to as well. We're just so tactical, we're so in the weeds. We don't step back and say, let's look systemically. Why do we keep having these problems? What's going on? Is there something in the process, in the system, in the environment that's causing this? I remember reading a Harvard Review article, Harvard Business Review article, that said most executives spend less than one day a year on strategy. Right? And these are executives and strategies, their big picture version, and they can't focus on it. So those of us who might not be at that top level, who might be in that mill manager level, how are we going to focus on our strategy? For us, it's not the corporate strategy. It's our, it's our process. It's the bigger picture. It's really tough to do. And we have to be very disciplined to say, you know what? I've got to step back every once in a while. Even when you look at a process... Uh, in software where i work we have the sprint processes where you do that check-in not post mortem at the end but check in regularly but even that because you have that faster process that faster cycle we tend to look a lot more tactically at what's been going on and oh we had a little bump last week but you're not stepping back and saying why are there so many bumps oh it's because whoever's paving the road has a, a little problem in their paper
0: yeah it's true it's so true and, uh, I, that that stat that you offered is 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 shocking right to think that at an executive level you wouldn't be able to carve more time out for for the strategic stuff it's easy to think that, that that that's why they're on the payroll that's why they exist is to think about that strategic stuff for for those of us who aren't and clearly get mired in in the firefighting and and really don't step back to to try to see the forest for the trees what advice might you give to try and carve that time out? And and if you do get that time, what, what do you even do with it? I, I think this is kind of a black hole for a lot of people that they never operate there, so they don't know what to do if, for whatever reason, they, they are able to get that time.
1: There are a couple things that you can do. One is you literally put the time on your calendar. This is a technique that I've used, I know many other people, where you just, okay, way ahead of time, I am blocking off Let's say Friday morning, the last Friday of the month, I'm blocking out four hours, don't schedule meetings, and you can just get that time. Because this doesn't work as well when you get 15 minutes here, half an hour there. This is really focused time. You could do it even as a group and say, all of us, we're going to step back. I would recommend when doing this, get off-site Go, even if it's just to some coffee shop down the street, it doesn't have to be a big corporate retreat, but get out of the office, change your perspective and try to look at bigger issues, right? And say, what overall, what is it that we should be doing? What can change? Or do we notice a series of problems and ask, are they linked, right? Try to basically do this shift in your coordinate system, do this rotation and say, instead of looking at each problem, Can we shift and look at them all together? Is there a common thread through here? I would very much recommend the book, The Fifth Discipline, by Peter Senge. Fantastic book on operations research. And he really talks about looking at systems, understanding systems and incentives, and seeing what that does to cause individual behaviors that come out as either good or bad in our day-to-day process and operations. I think there's probably a number of other books in that space as well that could be useful.
0: Uh, yeah, Peter Senge's yeah, the fifth discipline. I, I read that for the first time last year, and as a systems engineer, I'm embarrassed to say that I only just read it last year. It's a, it's a fantastic read, and 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 he illustrates his ideas very very cleverly. Uh, it's a it's an excellent read. I, I, w- I would I would say any engineer, r- regardless of what discipline or industry you're in, would benefit from that, and and uh, it's a great primer on systems thinking. Um, you 've mentioned several times here that, that you you teach at mit you 've been teaching there for no, uh, nearly twenty years now, which is uh, uh, a phenomenal accomplishment in my books. It, it would have put you in touch with some of some of the nation 's brightest technical students over a number of years that that 's really really cool um, and you teach at what 's called the, the undergraduate Practice opportunities program we well, 've talked a, a bit about that and how you help develop the curriculum. What I'm trying to make sense of is if this is a program that's been in, in the world's premier technical school for 20 years, how is it that the rest of the world hasn't yet caught on? What, what, is, it, what is it that, that people are, are missing in terms of the value of these skills and how important it is for people to, to have them as soon as they leave undergrad? What, what, what is it? What's the block here?
1: I wouldn't say, why don't other schools have it? It's almost, why does MIT have it? And I'll explain (laughs) both both parts of that. MIT, we got lucky. Lightning struck. Desh Deshpande, a wonderful alum, donated $5 million for us to start a new type of program and gave it as pretty much a blank check. Wow. Chris Resto, who was the first director of the program, came in and had a lot of experience in this space. And the combination of the resources and Chris's guidance came together to allow MIT to develop this, right place, right time. So the question is why haven't universities in general developed this, other universities, why did it take MIT so long? It has to do with the history of the university system. Universities are run by professors. Now they're great people in many ways I've worked with a lot, but a professor is designed to be very narrow in knowledge. If you think about our learning, we go from high school, very broad general skills for life, To college, we focus on a discipline. Graduate school, you get subspecialty. PhD, you become the world's leading expert in some really tiny field. Right. And that's where you're focused. When you go to college, what happens? So you want to be a chemical engineer. Okay, great. You take a bunch of classes and a bunch of very senior chemical engineers who we call professors said, well, if you've studied enough, if you've learned this much content, taken this many hours, We designate you a chemical engineer at the bachelor's level. They're not saying you're competent. They're not saying you're good. They're not saying you know how to explain chemical engineering to non-chemical engineers. They're just saying you have this level of knowledge about chemical engineering. That's it. So the schools aren't trying to produce, historically, people who are effective workers. They're just saying we're producing people who have a certain level of knowledge in this area. This will start to change, I think, in roughly, because it's academic, uh, roughly a 40 to 50 year time scale, when people are starting to say, why am I spending this much on my education? Now, engineering, we still get a good ROI. When you're a chemical engineer, mechanical engineer, people are hiring you, paying you good money, you can go into debt, no problem. When someone is studying history, right, or some of these other things, that wonderful field, I'm a big fan of history and all these fields, but the job prospects aren't as strong. Mm-hmm. And when you're going $80,000, $100,000 into debt to start out at a $35,000 a year job, there's going to be pressure on the schools about why is this good investment? How do you make me more marketable? But the history professors aren't the ones, or the chemical engineering professors, aren't the ones motivated to do that. It will be the dean's. So there's a slower process here at work.
0: Right. And, and and one of the other things that I think is really interesting that is taking place before our eyes is the emergence of massive open online courses, companies like Coursera and EDX. Google is now offering very high level certification and training for dirt cheap, uh, project management certification being one of them. Um, I, I think it's really interesting what you're saying here, the, the idea that education Ultimately, will need to keep pace with what industry demands, and what industry demands of its technical folks like you and I is that we become. I've heard the term T-shaped engineer, where you've got the 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 leg of the T is your narrow but deep area of technical knowledge, but then you've got this this uh, this hat across the top where you do have a little bit of knowledge in a great number of areas, and I think more and more that will have to be the model if if schools are going to continue to, uh, frankly, be competitive in a very, very crowded marketplace.
1: The way I think about that model, think about a rectangle. We're going to do a little math problem here, but I know your audience can handle it. Love it. Imagine you have a rectangle that's four by 10. You need to increase one of the sides by two units and you want to maximize the area. Do you increase the four or the 10?
0: Well, you increase the four.
1: Absolutely. And I'm sure everyone in the audience got it right. Okay, conceptually, why? What's happening? It's not just, well, okay, the math works. When you increase that four, when you increase the short side, you're adding two units. Those two units are amplified by that long side. Mm-hmm. If you increase on a long side, you're amplifying by the short side. All of us have long and short sides. We are long in our mechanical engineering. We are long in our chemical engineering. That's our area of expertise, maybe in a subspecialty. We don't have to be long in every side. We don't have to be great at maybe economics. But when we look at some of these other core skills, when we look at public speaking or leadership or having a good network or being a good teammate in team building, those are our short sides compared to what our engineering strength is. And this isn't just for engineers, this is for anyone in a profession. We spend all this time working on our long sides. I know for me in software, I always have to learn new technologies, right? What I'm doing today didn't exist five years ago. In many of our fields, we have to keep up with new techniques. We always focus on the long side. By putting even just a little bit of time on our shorter side, we maximize our area, we get a much better ROI. And so all of us need to remember Keep your long side, stay up to date, but make sure to invest in some of those short sides, which, of course, is more than just one other dimension, it's multiple ones. And in the end, we become a lot more well-rounded in the hypercube and ultimately the hypersphere that this model leads to. Well,
0: that, that's great. I, I really like the visual. That's uh, that, that's something I would not heard before. Thank you for that. Um, Mark, this has been an awful lot of fun. I've learned a lot. I'm sure the people listening have learned a lot. If people would like to learn more about you, about your work, check out the book, where's the best place for them to go?
1: You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. You can learn where to buy the book, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local bookstores. You can get in touch with me. Go to the resources page to get a list of other books, links to other websites, the download for how to create this peer learning group at your organization. There's also a free app. It's linked from the website and available on Google and Apple stores. Because the other thing, when you read a book like this, you say, this is great, and then you forget it a few weeks later. With the app, what it does, it's going to, you don't even need to open it, it's going to pop up some of the tips from the book each day to help reinforce your learning, or you can open it up, say you're going into a negotiation, open it up, go to the negotiation tips, and do a quick refresh by running through it right before you enter that meeting. All of this at the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. Fantastic.
0: That's great, Mark. And and I really like the the idea of that app to to reinforce things. I'll be linking to all of that on the show notes. So anyone who's interested in checking that out, that'll be engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 24. Mark, thank you very, very much for your time today. This has been uh, an awful lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you so
1: much for having me. I've really enjoyed being here.
0: Thank you once again, Mark. As you could probably tell, I really enjoyed that conversation. There were some really interesting nuggets in there, as as is always the case here in the show. There are a few things that stuck out to me from that conversation. And the first thing, as I was reflecting back on our conversation, was that there's no better way to learn than to teach. And this came up Quite a bit through through Mark's experience, and what you didn't hear, Mark and I were, were talking a little bit uh, at the at the end of the recording about how fortunate he has been to teach at MIT and to understand the kinds of things that students struggle with, the kinds of things that uh, when when he uses a certain turn of phrase or a certain analogy or a certain model that that light bulbs go off. He's had that opportunity to see that live for twenty years. So really, writing the book. At least the first draft was pretty straightforward. It was just a matter of sitting down, doing that, that brain dump and really getting all of that knowledge he already had on paper. So again, that exercise of teaching was hugely beneficial for him. And this is something I think translates very well in any other aspect of our lives. If you really want to know something, if you really want to go deep on a particular t- topic, get to a point where you can teach it and then teach it. It doesn't have to be at a university. It could be a lunch and learn at work. It could be very, very simple, but it's incredibly, incredibly powerful. The other thing that I really liked, he mentioned this at the very end of the interview, was that rectangle analogy. It, It was a really great way of illustrating how bolstering some skills can act as a catalyst for all of these other skills that you have. And in the case of engineers, often our software skills, our business skills, communications, project management, negotiation, these are all things that if we do a little bit better in these skills, it really unlocks a huge amount of potential that is already stored up in our our technical expertise. So I really like that analogy. That was great. I also really liked his advice on creating space to think at a higher level. He mentioned uh, going off-site for strategic-level discussions and just the value in separating yourself physically from the day-to-day so that you can think about things other than the day-to-day. It's incredible how the environment that we create to facilitate work really typically only facilitates a part of the work, and typically it's that that day-to-day work, and by physically removing yourself, by creating a new atmosphere, by disrupting those day-to-day routines, it allows, again, it kind of acts as a catalyst for thinking about things differently. And I, I find that incredibly powerful. Many of you know that my wife and I go on on annual uh, family retreats. We have our own annual general meeting, and it's very, very simple. And I know this this is incredibly nerdy, but it's true. We'll book uh, a little bed and breakfast or or even a a meeting room at one of the local libraries just to separate ourselves from the day-to-day hustle and bustle of the home. And what that does is that allows us space to think, to think about things like values and our mission and and the kinds of big projects that we want to tackle over the next year. The same thing applies at work. In fact, we we borrowed that from the, the corporate world, right? So again, don't uh, don't knock that advice. That's, that's really, really powerful stuff. Thanks again, Mark, for being part of the show and delivering all the value you did. It was a lot of fun. Once again, all the links to everything that Mark mentioned will be in the show notes. That'll be at engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 24. Everything you need to know will be there. Next up, we've got the Engineering and Leadership Mailbag. Well, my friends, you know how this works. This is the part of the show where I read your messages and answer your questions. I promise to read absolutely everything you send me, and I promise to share my favorites here on the podcast. There was a note from Esteban Solorzano, who wrote on LinkedIn to say he was a first-time listener. Welcome to you, Esteban. Thank you very much for writing. Esteban is a fellow CSEP, a systems engineering professional, which is a designation given out by the International Council of Systems Engineers. Uh, I'm also a CSEP, so it's always fun to to see others who have that designation. So thank you very much for writing Esteban. Glad to have you along. Uh, Tim Brady, who's a friend of the show, commented on the Leaders Are Readers contest, saying that he had not yet read the Start Finishing book, which is an excellent book on productivity from Charlie Gilkey. And that's one of the three books that I'm going to be giving away as part of the contest. So do check that out. It, it's a fantastic read, whether whether you join the contest or win the contest or not, do check that out. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And finally, Andrew Smith, a chemical engineering student, recently asked uh, a really interesting question about something he heard in episode 22 with Dr. Katrina Borousse on managing brilliant jerks. And here's what Andrew was asking. He asked, are they honestly that brilliant? If you aren't willing to learn or to teach, how far can you really advance? And I think this is a really interesting question. This is really insightful because uh, Dr. Borousse's entire framework is on, on this idea that uh, really bright engineers often get promoted into management. At, at, at which point they they flounder really often for the first time in their careers because management is a fundamentally different job. You are no longer an engineer, and you must interact with people, and you must have a degree of emotional intelligence, which for many of us is not a muscle we've ever had to flex when we first become managers. So the brilliant part, at least in, in Katrina's uh, worldview here, is, is related to the technical bit, which I think makes a lot of sense. Often we do take the best and brightest engineers and pro- promote them into management because they're such good engineers. And what Katrina's arguing is that, yeah, in fact, they you, you have to be really, really bright in order to be an excellent engineer. So these are people who are brilliant. Now, where I think there's a difference of opinion between what Katrina would argue and what Andrew's asking about here is about being willing to learn. Now, if you listen back to episode 22, you'll hear that one of the things that is super important is when you have a brilliant jerk, one of these engineers come managers who who really have a hard time with with dealing with people, is they need to be shown that fact. They need to be shown that, in fact, they are being jerks. And often, brilliant jerks don't get it. They, they don't see it right away. They have no real insight, no real appreciation for the fact that they're being perceived that way. Once they do, however, there's a switch that often can get flipped. Because you have to remember, these are high-performing people. These are people who have worked very hard, who care a great deal about their own success and their careers and, and the success of their organizations. And once they realize that there is some issue, typically they're very driven to solve it. It might not be easy. It might not be fast. But when uh, when presented with this challenge, many brilliant jerks want very desperately to address any kind of skills gap they have, any kind of deficiency. And in this case, it would be emotional intelligence. So thank you very much, Andrew. I thought that was a fantastic question. I really appreciate that. And finally, the the other big thing that happened on social media in my world is everyone I know commented on a picture I posted of my daughter taking my new podcast studio for a spin. I I put that up on LinkedIn. So if we're not already connected on LinkedIn and you'd like to see a six-year-old in a podcast studio, uh, this is the best way to do it. I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can connect with me. LinkedIn by far is the uh, social media platform where I'm most active and I have the most interesting conversations, frankly, about, about uh, my work and leadership and management. So uh, if you have not yet connected with me there, please do. I'd love to meet you out there. And finally, just a quick reminder that if you'd like to be on the show, please do send me your, your messages either on LinkedIn or through the show notes, or you can leave, even leave me a voicemail at slash contact that is all the time we have for the show today my friends thank you once again to mark for joining me on the show today Uh, as always it was an absolute blast i'll be back next week with our next episode if you enjoyed the show it would be fantastic if you could leave a review using whatever pod service you use i'd like to know what was the most memorable thing that you learned in the show today something that that really stood out to you if you want to leave me a review with whatever was most memorable, I will absolutely feature you in the mailbag. And as always, this helps me to improve the show and this helps others to find the show as well. So that, that's absolutely win-win. And finally, don't forget about the Leaders Our Readers contest at engineeringandleadership.com slash contest. For more information and links to the resources mentioned on today's show, just go to the show notes at engineeringandleadership.com episode 24. And until next time, this is Pat Sweet reminding you that if you're going to be anything, be excellent. You've been listening to the Engineering and Leadership Podcast with Pat Sweet. If you'd like to learn more, go to engineeringandleadership.com, where you'll find more free articles, podcasts, and downloads to help engineers thrive. That's engineeringandleadership.com.